And what they found was no qualitative difference between alter. Uh, they found no qualitative difference between. I can't say alter. I want to say alternative <laughs> intelligence. <laughs> what is that? It is, it's advanced. What is that? Artificial. Is it Friday? We found no qualitative difference. Let me start over. They found no qualitative difference between. I'm blocking and I need to write it out. Good crazy. Here's your false start. You can just say you can just say AI if you want. I to. just say AI. They you know, and no, if you get AI's if you get AI's name wrong, it, no feelings. It doesn't. They, care. Uh, they've already told me they don't have feelings like we do. So they don't it's have okay. feelings. They're not humans. They want to be, but they can't be. I'm John Nash here with Jason Johnston. Hey, John. Hey, everyone. And this is Online Learning in the Second Half, the online learning podcast. We're doing this podcast to let you in on a conversation we've been having for the last two years about online education, and we're continuing to have. Look, online learning's had its chance to be great, and some of it is, and some of it just isn't. How are we going to get to the next stage? That's a great question. How about we do a podcast and talk about it? I agree. Let's. But first, I want to know, what do you want to talk about today? Well, so much has been happening in the last few weeks in terms of AI. It's almost laughable. We were like, yeah, we should probably move on from AI and talk about other things. And then all of a sudden, all we've been talking about for the last two weeks is AI, it feels like. But anyway, so I was thinking about all these things a couple of weeks ago. Just a ton of new things were being released. You and I, we were watching from separate places, but the release of GPT-4 and that amazing demonstration and some of the other AI tools that were coming out. And so, and I was catching up one evening, checking some of these things out online. And then I made the mistake of watching an episode of uh, Black Mirror. Do you know that show? I do. Yeah, that can be a mistake sometimes. (laughs) <laughs> and it's kind of a, it's like a cautionary uh, technology tales, kind of like a futuristic Twilight Zone. And so I had watched that before, before going to bed. And then I was literally all night long, I was having nightmares of tossing and turning, wrestling with chat GBT. It wouldn't do what I wanted it to do every time I, you know how it is when you're dreaming and you can't quite read things when you're dreaming. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. No, I haven't thought about that. Let me think well, a minute. No. When you're dreaming, try to read something, turn your head away and come back and try to read the same thing again, and it doesn't work. So I was working with ChatGBT all night long in my dreams. And, you know, I woke up the next day and I felt like I hadn't slept at all. And do you know what I realized that I think I came down with, John? No. What did you come down with? I think I had AI fever. <laughs> Is there a cure for that? <laughs> well... I don't know if there's a cure or not right now. It might just be something that has to kind of work through our systems <laughs> right now. Like- I'm not sure that they're, <laughs> it came upon us too suddenly to, I think, for anybody to work on any kind of cure. But I think but it's it, not only hit me, I think it's hitting other people as well. I think so. Is it, uh, is it like cowbell? You just need more cowbell? You need more AI? Uh, I think well, we that's what it, yeah, it's kind of like a, 
it's, I don't know how to describe it. Uh, some of the symptoms would be kind of this kind of perplexity of thought towards it, where you're thinking about it, but you're not really coming to any kind of resolve. And before you even don't come to any resolve, the new information comes out about it. So I think that's, right. those are some of my symptoms anyways of AI fever. Maybe it's good that uh, Bing AI cuts you off after 15 prompts now. Uh, maybe it is. So, so I've been trying to do some more analog things on the weekend, get my head away from, so that's been good, good recovery there, that's you know, playing the yeah. guitar, getting outside, those kind of things. But yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about that and about just all that's happened in the last month. Well, I'm with you. I mean, just when I was sort of dusting off my hands and saying, okay, phew, at least we got that AI stuff out of the way so we can start to talk about some other things and can't help but think we have to talk about some things. I've been finding some research that's really interesting that I think implies uh, we need to be thoughtful about what's going to occur with online learning. And uh, yeah, just this, but just this timeline, uh, as you're talking about, is kind of, kind of amazing. I'm looking at our collaborative notes here and just sort of reflecting on, uh, I thought that, you know, back in November, when the first sort of public beta of, of GP, PT3 came out and you and I started playing with it towards the end, middle or end of November, I guess, right before the semester break was clearly revolutionary, very different. Uh, and uh, the predictive language model from 3.5 that came out in the end of November, like how, what could actually happen from here and how fast will this go? And we had no idea that in just three months, it would be right. as advanced as it is now. Yeah, well, and right about the time we were starting this podcast in February, then Bing Chat came out, and its connection to the internet was, uh, I think, revolutionary for current information, but also the more conversational style, and that, of course, all those early crazy things were happening to myself and others with these long conversations with Bing Chat. Those conversations you had with Bing and the sort of humanizing attempts on Microsoft's part, it seemed like, to have those responses be a little more soft and a little more uh, empathetic uh, reminds me of how much chatter was going on in, say, January and February about how unnecessary it was to anthropomorphize these chatbots because they were just... Being, uh, they're just computers that are programmed with English language. And so there was no need to treat them like they were humans. I think people's attitudes have changed a little bit towards that. Yeah, how so? What do you think? How have people I think people changed? can't help but anthropomorphize these machines. Right, yeah. And then in February, Facebook, Meta, made an announcement about its large language model, of course, just to kind of keep up with everybody, it felt like. But I've yet to seen that. I have I have my name in the hat to see a, oh. some sort of early rendition of that, but Mark has still not responded to me on that one. So, uh, And from what I understand from other sources that I've listened to other podcasts, this language model called Llama was also leaked in some way. Right. And so that it's possible for individual users like you and I to run this model on our own private computers and then do with what we will, which is raise some concerns amongst people, hasn't it? I think its unique feature is that it's very compact once it's trained. Yeah. And, um, and then maybe it leaked out from there to people that they didn't necessarily want it to be in the wrong hands. Maybe. And I think it's that wrong hands idea that is getting some people excited because of the way in which, for instance, chat GPT 
did their red team efforts. So to red team something is to bring in outsiders to find out what's wrong with it. And so in this case, uh, they wanted to make sure ChatGPT couldn't do things like tell you how to take common kitchen chemicals and make a bomb. Uh, actually, it turns out in their one of their papers, I guess they came out, it, it could do that. And so now they put up the guardrails. And so I guess the issue with right. Llama being released by Meta and Facebook is that these guardrails don't exist uh, in right. whose ever hands. It also makes me think about state actors and others. I mean, the, the, the point of having these guardrails is to create some level of safety, but it's only up to the private companies right now, like OpenAI, to decide to put the guardrails up. Yeah. And I think it was a good and interesting idea for even chat to open it up and limited release to allow a million users to try it out and Bing chat the same kind of way so that they could see. I mean, the idea was it it was in beta and they could see what it could and couldn't do. And they knew that users would test the limits of it, which is exactly the way to do it. So I wonder if some of the fervency in fear around it was a little unnecessary, just considering that this was uh, a beta. Maybe the fear was about what it could do, not necessarily what it would do in full release. But like, I can't believe that, you know, for some of the people like you and I, we've talked about the Hard Fork podcast and one of the writers from New York Times that that talked about this long conversation with Bing Chat that who tried to get him to leave his wife because it was uh, Bing was in love with him. So yeah, that was out there. And by the way, good plug for that podcast for anybody who's interested in these topics. That's uh, Hard yeah. Fork is a good one. And just that one about that his experience. Yeah, it's fascinating to just listen to them uh, talk about that. So we'll put the link in the show notes for that one. But yeah, but you know, I, I wondered after that, and now that we've matured a little bit, yeah, I know it's been like uh, only a few months, but now that they're starting to put guardrails on these large language models, it seems to have kind of cooled some of the engines about about some of these concerns about AI. What do you think? <laughs> I think yes and no. We'll wait and see what happens with Llama and as yeah. independent actors and other yeah, state actors take up the charge to start their own large language models. I don't feel as though things have calmed down all that much in some education circles with regard to knee-jerk reactions of cheating and plagiarism and whatnot. I feel like those conversations are still in play. I feel like there's still conversations around how to put in tools to keep students from doing things rather than putting in tools to enable students to do things. I think we have some distance to go there, but that's what I'm thinking right at the moment. Yeah. Well, and as we record this, it is March 27th, 2023. And uh, just looking at our timeline again, March has just been crazy. We did a forum, uh, my first like public forum talking about AI and education last week. And I, at the beginning of the forum that, that we were both in, I was co-moderating. I was uh, doing a quick overview of where we're at with AI. Right. And it, it was funny because my overview changed every day, essentially. And I was changing things even that morning before, just because of uh, new releases. And as we were talking about different, 
different new releases, but March has been like a wild ride. We had on March 14th, uh, chat GPT four, the demo that we were talking about and a couple things in those demo that blew me away. Maybe there's uh, the first thing that comes to mind is him drawing a really rough sketch of a website, scanning it through his, his phone and then, uh, chat for creating the website with a joke, his joke website with like a working uh, JavaScript button. Yes, that's exactly what he did. And uh, he uploaded it to a Discord server and GTP4, yeah, took the napkin sketch. And I saw that too. It was rudimentary. It was as quick as you might do you know, over a Coke or a beer with a friend uh, with a pen and take, I don't know, yeah. 30 seconds to draw this thing. And uh, it rewrote the HTML and the JavaScript to run this website. So a very powerful upgrade. Another thing that happened that a lot of people didn't see on March 14th is that another company called Claude uh, released uh, an option for people to be able to check out Claude. You should check it out. It's interesting. And I think within that, uh, what I would suggest f- for people as they're testing this is to go to poe.com, P-O-E.com. There you're able to test multiple chat engines side by side. You can do your own test and see how they um, produce different results from the same prompt. And I think it's, that could be a very powerful tool, but you can uh, access Claude through that. Um, yeah. Claude is interesting because it and I don't I'm not pretending to know everything about it. I've read some about it and I've asked Claude some about uh, themselves, but it is based on more of a constitutional model. So it's as I understand it, it's less guided by the users and user preferences and more guided by their by a strong constitutional model of ethics and kindness and do no harm and those kind of things. Yeah, I was looking that up too in a blog post on scale.com. We'll put a note in the uh, in the show notes. <clears throat> you can ask Claude to introduce itself and talk about its constitutional model. And uh, so constitutional AI is a safety research technique developed by these researchers at uh, Anthropic who have built this. Mm. And the goal is to be helpful, harmless, and honest by using Mm. a model of self-supervision in safety methods. So it's going to use a model that will help police itself. Yeah, I like that. And I understand people that started this actually left OpenAI because they were concerned with some of the directions that it was going. Yeah, and Um, they're uh, also Alphabet funded. So Google's parent. Oh, they are as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's interesting. So we've got Google. And speaking of Google... March 21st, then, Google's BARD was uh, released to the public in terms of being able to access it. Now, we talked previously about their demo. They did a demo that was kind of a failed demo by having some some incorrect. They had one job, which was a screenshot of BARD, had one job to do, show that screenshot. And in the screenshot, they had some wrong information that BARD produced. But I've been playing with it. I think it's really... um, I think it's interesting. I haven't decided what I feel about it yet in terms of the differences. But you can ask for access, uh, bard.google.com, and I'm sure we will be seeing a lot more of Bard in the future because Google, they are no slouches when it comes to AI. They've been training this thing for years. 
It's just that they were a little, I think they had to say something to keep up with the Joneses, but it doesn't seem like it's fully baked yet. No, they weren't ready to release it yet. And so, but they felt like they needed to let everybody know what they've been working on. So, yeah. Yeah. So what do you think, John? How do how does all this apply then to online learning? What are some of the things you're thinking this uh, this month with all the changes? Well, Jason, I've been attempting to garner new research as it comes out about AI and GPT-4 specifically in the last couple of weeks uh, and its connection to online learning. Little things are coming out. I think it's also worth reporting that when GPT-4 came out on the 14th, OpenAI was quick to report that it passed the U.S. bar legal exam with the results in the 90th percentile compared right. to the 10th percentile for the previous version of chat GPT. So it's just, it's, wild. It's, it's blown the doors off this stuff. It can look at a picture and describe it with great detail. So this has affordances for visually impaired people. And then it can also interpret drawings and pictures and create code. One of the things I've ran across was a study, a working paper done by some researchers in Germany looking at how chatbots have risen to human level creativity. And they applied the alternative uses test. And it's one of the most frequently used creativity tests that shows good predictive validity. And they gave 100 human participants and five generative AI models, the alternative uses test. And they had six human beings and a specifically trained AI independently rate these alternative uses. So basically you say, give us multiple original uses for five everyday objects. And it's pants, a ball, a tire, a fork, a toothbrush, and give us new ideas for these. How else could we use these things? They found no qualitative difference between AI and human generated creativity. And only 9.4% of the humans were more creative than the most creative generative model, which was GPT-4. So to the extent that generative language AI tools can be considered creative, and specifically in terms of their output for on these standardized measures, this research found that tools like ChatGPT, Studio AI, U.com, they're judged to be as original as human-generated ideas and were almost indistinguishable from human output. Now, but don't forget that you still need a human to create the prompts. And so I think that's going to be, you know, these models can't generate the prompts. They can't generate an idea on their own. So they need specific input. But I think that's pretty interesting I think it goes to some of the things we've already been talking about with regard to these models being useful for generating ideas in the face of a blank page, uh, busting inertia, keeping ideas going. And another one that I just wanted to mention real quick, if it's okay, is this, uh, uh, some economists and some people uh, attached to OpenAI looked at the labor market impact potential of large language Mm. models. Their findings are pretty astounding. Their findings suggest that around 80% of the U.S. workforce could have at least 10% of their work tasks affected by the introduction of large language models. And about 19% of workers may see at least 50% of their tasks impacted. 
Now, they don't account for how, as we talked about a minute ago, regulations and laws and other guardrails might come up to, to perhaps put uh, uh, their arms around the use of these in certain sectors and things like that. But at the moment, it's hard to ignore the fact that this is impacting the way people work. Yeah, and it makes you think about this concern that AI is going to come and replace a lot of the work we do, and it may replace a lot of the education we do because it can do both of those things so easily. And this shows some of the concern because, you know, it's not just if when we're talking about doing our laundry for us, it sounds like that it's not just doing our laundry for us. So a task that maybe didn't doesn't take necessarily a lot of creativity to do has some clear steps and is always this and this like a like replacing as we've talked about uh workers that put cars together, right? right. Uh, and not saying that's unskilled, that's definitely skilled labor, but it has a very clear-cut kind of way to operate. But you're talking about actually replacing a lot of creative work that could go on. Possibly. I think it augments creative work, but I mean, humans still have to implement the creative ideas. Uh, and right. one thing that was interesting in the creativity paper is, are we talking about little C creativity or big C creativity? I'd like to think you and I are making a difference in the world, but I'll be honest, I'll just talk about myself. Most of the uh, <laughs> stuff I do with ChatGPT is little C creativity. In other words, not creating world-changing ideas. It's mostly right. me getting through the mundane things that I need to get through, or actually, well, maybe some creative things that give me new ideas of new avenues of research. But it's, yeah, I don't think it's, yeah. Yeah, and when you were talking about that it was just 9.4% of humans that were more creative than the most creative uh, AI. Right. GPT-4. It did make me think, now I have an answer for people when they say, you know, well, is AI going to replace humans? And I'll be like, uh Probably only 90.6% of them. Yeah. Yeah, you're safe, probably, maybe. Probably fine. <laughs> Joking aside, though, I mean, even though it can do it, doesn't mean that we're going to want AI to do that kind of creative work, right? That's right. Because as we've talked about as well, that that creativity is part of the joy of the work and the things that we do. We want to be the ones that are making the creative effort here, not necessarily just spitting it into a machine. That's right. That's why I ask my students in my design thinking course when they get to the point of brainstorming in that phase of the cycle that they not use generative language models until they themselves have done their brainstorm. And so then it could augment right. what they've got, but it can't take a brainstorm on for something that it itself did not research, the human's needs, the things that need to be uh, addressed. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and I think that's a, I think that could be a really great educational model as we talk some of the differences between AI in education versus the workforce is thinking about, you know, what are we wanting to learn, be trained in, uh, to be testing our own thinking, and uh, we you know, maybe taking a step back from AI to allow us to make sure we're at least doing those things first before then figuring out how AI could help us to do those things later. Uh, hey, let me ask you this. With regard to creativity around known parameters 
that are not a secret in the world, and I'm talking about instructional design, but when we're thinking about learning management systems like Canvas that have innumerable plugins, I'm wondering when we'll see the plugins that help professors and teachers be more intelligent about their instructional design. I mean, it would be wonderful if we could be able to drop our modules in. I import my course every semester from last semester, whatever it is you do, but then let the large language model make some suggestions where it sees you know, 90% of the gaffes that occur in an instructional approach could be caught and even repaired by the language model. Module pacing and the design of the assessments as they relate to the outcomes, kinds of communications you have with the students, the timing and frequency of those communications, the tone used compared to the kind of things you get from the students. All of that just seems like it could be handled by an intelligent plug-in for teachers. Yeah, I agree, especially like from an instructional design standpoint, I think one of our, we call them our clarion calls, or one of our our big things, which is to uh, have clear, measurable student learning outcomes, and then everything throughout the course should be hanging on those outcomes. And I can, so I can perceive of something like that could essentially scan or uh, read through a course, mm-hmm. knowing that these are our learning objectives, and try to intuit whether or not things are hanging on those learning objectives and almost like an accessibility checker mm-hmm. is able to miss things that don't hang on the learning objectives. Yeah. And so it would give the teacher an opportunity to either add learning objectives if they're important or remove yeah. activities and learning modules if they're not important. Many people in our audience listening to this may be familiar with Quality Matters. It's a pretty well-known right. Uh, group, uh, at least in our, of our ilk. And, but so uh, chat GPT-4 could mine the quality matters rubric and then just done. It'd be, yeah. I think that would be amazing. We should, we should pitch that to them. Quality matters plugin, AI plugin. Yeah. What would we call it? Quality matters. QP, yeah, I don't know. Got to think about that. I can't brainstorm. I have to rely on uh, large language models right. to brainstorm. No, no. Do the hard work, John. Don't reach for that. Don't. Hurts. Don't reach for chat. Please. Don't do it. Let's think about this. So we've got Chad, we've got chat, we've got Claude, we've got Bard. They all kind of sound a little similar. So we could do with we something with a, a Q and a... Yeah. Or Matt. Yeah. Matt. Matters, Matt. It could be Matt. Oh, Matt. That's not bad, John. I think I like that. Matt. Q Matt? Q Matt. Kind of like a Q Bert? <laughs> yes. Oh, Q Bert's not bad, though, too. Do you remember Q Bert? No. Oh, John. It was, a, it was this little creature that you had to jump up and down on this pyramid. It was a kind of a. I don't know. It's like a weird 2D, 3D Pac-Man or something. I'm looking it up right now. Like crawling up a... Oh, yeah. Oh, he has a long uh, cylindrical nose. Yeah, he's got have a, a bit of a snout. And yeah. He jumps up a cubed pyramid. Yep. Okay. I yeah. had a standalone, a little standalone pocket 
Kubert uh, game. It was amazing. Didn't uh, that didn't cross my gaze back in the day? No. Okay. Well, you're missing out. It was yeah. amazing. So that's our pitch, right? Yep. So now that we've done the creative work, John, of coming up with Qbert, now we can perhaps uh, pitch to chat for what our marketing pitch, our eight-slide uh, corporate funding marketing pitch to uh, Quality Matters would be for their new AI. I think we could. Ethan Mollick just recently published how he uh, did, in about 30 minutes, he put together a a business idea with all the accompanying email campaigns and website creation uh, for his, yeah, for his fictitious company. So, yeah, I've got 30 minutes to spare, I guess, on this. Okay. Yeah. Sounds possible. I think they're going to love it. Jason, I know uh, someday we're going to stop talking about AI for the entire episode, but uh, what do you think uh, will get us off of talking about AI? Well, if it stops changing so quickly, and I think we will come to some steady state of understanding with AI, but uh, it may not be too soon. It's hard to say. Certainly, when the workable aspects of AI don't change as quickly, we won't have as many things to talk about. But then we'll probably loop back as we're implementing it more and more in online education as we see new tools come out. Yeah. Like we kind of joked about the, the, about the Qbert. AI, but uh, as probably we'll have a thousand companies over the next year coming up, ed tech companies coming up with their new solutions, right, for AI. Yeah. And it'll be hard not to talk about those as they come out, as new innovations happen. So I'm not sure what will get us off, but I think that we will we'll try to cover some other things other than AI, but I think that we will. it will probably be something we'll return to now and again. I think we will. I think we'll probably run reviews on those tools that we start to see and maybe even bemoan the demise of some companies that we didn't expect to go thanks to AI coming on the scene. Right. I think one uh, pivot we can make away from AI that still references it is on assessment. I think all the talk that we've been seeing about the problems with generative language creating essays for students that they might turn in for writing tasks in English classes. I think that we could start to have a productive conversation about how we can support teachers in coming up with authentic assessments that still let them have writing occur, but not have to worry ever about whether or not the submission was AI generated. Yeah. And in that, there's more conversation to be had in terms of where those lines are crossed and for different disciplines, probably even, you know, they're kind of crossed in different ways and how we manage that so that our students continue to think, because that's the bottom line. We want them to be learning and thinking. Yes. There are some ways in which it matters not to me if they're using AI, but what does matter to me and so many teachers is whether or not they're actually continuing to learn and think. For sure. Yes. Thank you, John. This is great. Check out our check out our LinkedIn page, Online Learning Podcast, and also OnlineLearningPodcast.com. And please join in the conversation. We'd love to hear what you think about all this, what we're saying, and all this that is going on. So yes, thank please. you so much for listening. Thank you, everyone. 